I like brown a lot. So I'm going to read you some brown girl. Brown girl is another one of those poems that touches on history and culture. And I think it is a very humanist poem. Brown girl, you don't have to cry no more. No. Today, the eyes looking at you will judge you for the color of your heart, no matter the color of the eyes. Your grandmother and her grandmother knew nothing of the skin-free joy of your life. Every single walking step for them tested their spirit. They prayed that the precious Lord would take their hand. Lead them on, let them stand. They were tired, yes. They were weak sometimes, true, but they persevered, brown girl, for you. They prayed that someday their trial would end, yes. You're still a babe now, not far removed from the suckle of your mother, but light years from the mulatto, nappy, colored, and second-class citizen labels of your foremothers. Now you are a girl. Free to play, to dream, to sing, to inspire, and to be whoever you decide. Brown girl, you don't have to cry no more. No. You leave your eyes clear to see the ways through the fights of your generation. We have left much work for you to do. Leave your mind clear to find the ways that we did not know needed changing. Leave your heart free to soar beyond the stratosphere and discover worlds that we dare not dream about. Leave your anger alone. Replace it with the triumphs of two-century-year-old war that your foremothers fought for you to be free of tears. Brown girl, you don't have to cry no more. No. Celebrate your skin, your hair, your hips, your waist, your backside, and hold your head up high. Wear your smile wide and let your eyes glisten. Brown girl, you don't have to cry no more. No. Hello. I'm Robert Gibbons. Welcome to another edition of When Humanists Attack. We are a project of the humanist being of 5013C Incorporated in Vermont. Catchers of wild dogma, delighters and defenders of all human beings, and we hope to be your place. You can think for yourself, not by yourself. And today we are here to showcase the work of poet, educator, activist, activist, Queen of Patterson, New Jersey. Welcome, Queen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. I'm along um, here with my cohort, and comrade Roger Kimmel Smith. Roger, say hello. Hey, glad to be here. Let's toss around some words. Okay. Thank you. We're just going to go right into it. Uh, Queen, when I was reading your work, I one line really st stuck out to me, and I'm going to read that line to you. There is no comfort 30,000 feet in the air on a teacher's salary. I want you to debrief for us your experience this year as an educator with the situation that teachers had to confront. 
and the poetic life combined. So your line, 30,000 feet up in the air on a teacher's salary, which is a very interesting line. Debrief your school year this year with the present situation and the poetic life. Thank you for that um, complex question. So 30,000 feet on a teacher's salary is from the poem 1A, and it deals with um, police shooting people when that's not the escalation we want. And so um, teaching and flying can be complicated because teachers are not paid what we are worth and finding a flight on your salary is a complicated thing to do. And what we know is that teachers go above and beyond the call of duty. And an example of that is the 2020-2021 school year. And in addition to the onstart of the uh, pandemic, the 2019-2020 school year, when we immediately shifted to virtual schooling. And there was no preparation for that. There was no, um, hey, guess what? Let's try this thing out. Let's get a strategic plan together. There was none of that. At, in my district, we found out, maybe like other places, a day or two that we needed to have two weeks worth of curriculum ready for students to take home in paper packets in order to do their work. And so there we were like trying to get this done super fast. And by the time we got it done and, and whew, the kids were headed out and we didn't understand this crazy thing that was coming to us from wherever it was coming from and spreading so quickly all over the world, uh, COVID-19. It was an incredible feat and, and it, was, it was frightening. It was very frightening. Here was something that was going to possibly kill us and did kill some of us. And, and we were concerned about whether or not children had packets. Here yeah. we were running for our lives. Yeah, yeah you mentioned flying. It's uh, kind of really like flying by the seat of your pants. Yes, indeed. Running for our lives. And, and, and we were concerned about whether or not our scholars had work to do and and it was uh, an insane thing we were not allowed to go outside and we were not you know the grocery stores were limiting the number of people who could come in i mean you all lived through it but let's think about let's think about that from a teacher's perspective you you can't go outside and we are trying to figure out whether or not the kids are learning the scholars are learning and that's an interesting thing because their families also can't go outside. Their families are also, some of them sick and some of them dying. And they all are stressed out. And the whole world is concerned about whether or not um, the students were being educated, which is an interesting thing to be thinking about. But have you ever tried to do anything under duress? Of course. And so, and so our students are learning or trying to learn or attempting to or just not falling apart <laughs> right uh, under right. duress and and then we move from packets when we figured out that we this is it we're never going back outside you know first it was like two weeks and then it was four weeks and it was six weeks and then 
we had summer break and then we came back um, in the fall to a, um, our district was 100% virtual. Now, I know how to use technologies, but by and large, there were, for teachers who had been teaching for 30 years, 35 years, who had not integrated I know. into their yeah. lives. So they had to learn something new. They were building the ship at sea and concerned about now, if you've been teaching for 30 years, you are in that high risk category. Yes. For COVID. Yes. Yes. And now these people are at risk and trying to learn something new and teach as if nothing uh, is going on to scholars who are having um, life-changing experiences as well. And so we, um, on a teacher salary, didn't get a raise for that. Mm -hmm. We use our own internet. Most of the people use their own devices. And most teachers worked many more hours than they did when they drove to the building. Yes. Because there was just there was no school time versus home time, and suddenly your house, even your house, was different, right? The people in the house cannot talk to you, and and they need to really be concerned about whether or not they're, you know, my students could hear me or not, or hear the other people in the house and who's walking around topless, like all of these different things. Yeah that are not a not a concern um yeah teachers with young babies mm -hmm. had those babies crawling in their laps right because there is no circumstance right anywhere where your mom doing anything or dad doing anything and your baby sees you and they're not coming to you for a kiss or a problem solving or a sandwich or something it's thank you Thank you, Queen. I'm going to, before I uh, defer over to um, Roger, I have one other question for you. Um, I had the opportunity to teach a one-day workshop with the Poughkeepsie uh, School District during Poetry Month. And to be able, I had never taught like that to a, a group of 10th graders where no one was required to turn on the camera what do you feel about making students turn their camera on during instruction? And do you, did you have, did you all have that type of bias in your school district in Patterson, New Jersey? We had a rule that you had to have the camera on. Okay. And we did not follow, not everybody followed that. Here's the thing, right? Um, some, some scholars are concerned about their, learning environment mm -hmm. some scholars had grown increasingly um anxious mm -hmm. and consequently didn't want to be seen yes not only adults gained COVID 15 or COVID 19 pounds also our scholars gained COVID 19 pounds right. and they were not feeling great about showing that exactly change. Yes. And, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. And I was teaching middle school during that time. And I, I got to tell you, I did not enforce that, especially during my homeroom time. Folks were staying up all night playing games, doing whatever they, whatever they were going to do. And they got up in the morning and it was time to turn on the camera. Some of them were still in bed. 
Yes. Camera on. And exactly. with it, with, you know, coming to class and I, I did not require, and anyway, our classes are shorter than in person. And I didn't want to spend all my time talking about the camera. Like, can you hear me? Yes. Like, can you respond? Can you do the work? That's what I cared about. So mm -hmm. I did, I did not personally enforce that even though, and I'm probably telling too much about my practice, but, um, it just wasn't important to me to make them turn the camera on. I appreciate you saying that because, you know, I'm a teacher advocate and both of my parents were teachers. So I really respect what you do. And I'm going to defer it over to, to Roger. Roger. Yeah. I mean, I also, I know some teachers and I know some students who have been doing this virtual, this game all year. And it really seems like the, the teachers who were the most successful were the ones who really made a top priority of human connection with all their students, just making that the focus, you know, that was you can't even, focus for me. yeah, that was definitely the focus. You know, I, I recognize, you know, we need to be a bit and have a bit of empathy for what our scholars are going through. And also yeah. I had a bit of a blessing that other teachers didn't have. And that is I was teaching during pandemic, a group of scholars that I had in the past. So I knew all of them very well. And I knew their families very well. And I already had their phone numbers and things like that already saved in my phone. And so it was, I could say, you know, hey, Roger, you look a little different than usually. How are you feeling? And yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't I mean, I, I, have been able to do that if I didn't know them already. So that was a blessing. I, I wonder if you think, it's just, just occurring to me, but you know, we talk about building back better. Uh, I wonder whether you think it's likely that one of the things we might take away from this experience and gain from it is sort of infusing more of that humanist value, just the human to human connection first in throughout, you know, education, instead of the, 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 the you know, the set of focus that we've had before that. You know, the school district that I'm in has made a very conscious decision to um, incorporate social emotional learning and mindfulness into the teaching mm -hmm. practice. And teachers have been going to those kind of development courses in order to help them deal with their own well being and consequently the student well-being and so I think you're right about that we recognize that humans need to really connect to other humans basically the quarantine was like being in uh, yes what uh, what are you solitary confinement yes I agree exactly. I agree effect on humans being in solitary confinement so I think Roger you are right that right. the district's yeah all across the country will talk. So Queen, I'm gonna just keep I, mean, it I, I hope yeah. we're able to really comprehend that and and advance it. Yes. You know, really yes, seize definitely. this game and insist that, you know, that it go all the way through the values because, you know, it's it's very much like the humanist, like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This this stuff has to come first. You can't advance up, you know, to uh, you know, the, the real academic uh, heights without these levels of security and connection. I think you're correct. 
Hey, Quinn, I'd like to ask you, I'm, I'm uh, delighted to be speaking to a, a poet laureate, the poet laureate of Patterson, New Jersey. And I know that is, you know, uh, not just a creative honor, but also a, a civic one with some, you know, civic responsibilities. I'd like to hear about Patterson from you. What's special about the place and, and how you try to bring it in life, bring it to life in words. Patterson is the center of the universe. And... Um, it, there's everything here. Almost every culture is represented in our demographics. It has very poor places and very wealthy places. There's a great waterfall and a mountain. There's a castle and there are slums. And the United States Constitution was first written here in New Jersey. Um, when Hamilton founded our city and then William Patterson who's, there's a college named after him, he wrote the New Jersey Constitution, and that Constitution was the model for the United States Constitution, and the United States being the leader of the free world, that makes Patterson the center of the universe. Got the logic. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Queen, so teachers that administer I call it administeria that they go through, the administration and the hysteria that teachers have to deal with the administeria. Where is Queen in the poetic life amidst all of this new energy that came into the desk of a teacher? Where is the, where is the poetry of Queen? Where is the poetic life of Queen in the midst of all of this? I don't know how to not be a poet. And so I think that when I am talking to my scholars and communicating with my colleagues and my administrators, and I know because they tell me, it's very clear that I'm still using a poetic voice. And there are lots of times where something that happened in that environment, you know, will trigger, oh, that should be a poem. They don't always get written. But they are thought about like, oh, that should be a poem too. And so I think um, the pairing for me is quite nice because what I get to do in that space for Patterson Poetry Festival, for example, we want to have a youth poetry contest. I get to partner with my school and my district to have young people write poetry and bring it down to the Patterson Poetry Festival that happens each October for the last three years, and this is the fourth year. So that's an incredible partnership. And what it also does is allow me to go in and do workshops, even in my building and across the district, with teachers who may want a person who is a professional poet come and interpret and teach poetry when that poetry unit time comes. And so it is a, it is a beautiful fusion, and it feeds me as an artist, and I get to give back to my um, to my community in a way that is delightful for me. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like you've got uh, quite a lot of enterprises going on or, or you know, uh, programs and initiatives that all intersect with your, your poetic voice and identity and, and, you know, you're being a poet, not not being one. 
you know, but you're being all these other things as well, you know, uh, so you're being a poet when you're being a teacher and you're being a poet when you're being an organizer or a workshop leader. Uh, you have this, this, this domain name I want to ask you about of, of Word Seed Inc. Is, is this a, a, a program you started or a set of programs? Word Seed Inc. is the thing that I created in order to house all the other things that I've created and needed mm -hmm. a place to live. So Patterson Poetry Festival, um, I could have created a business entity for that and then created another business business entity for the Little Free Libraries and then created another business entity for the Maria Maziati Gillen Literary Service Award and another one and another one. And, but that's insane and nobody can do that, right? And so I thought it would be great to create a nonprofit that has multiple programs and they can all live in the same house. So anyone wants to see the financials, it's one thing. If anyone sure. wants to sure. The, the nonprofit for this, the that, you know, all of those things, they just live in the same place. And what it allowed me to do is create a board and get helpers to mm. work out these things. And it gives it the chance, it gives it a chance to live beyond my life. And awesome. so sure. that's why Absolutely. I wanted that. Amazing. I have and I love the name. Because uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, word but I, I mean, both both Robert and I call ourselves wordsmiths. Yeah, and and so we're talking to a poet laureate. So I yeah. think I mean we can go here for a minute because like, yes. a a, ve a very familiar thought in my head is about how the word is not the thing, the the yes. map is not the territory, and yes. and and by the same token, talk is different from action. Yes, you know, but you got a different metaphor here of of words. Or really, literacy as as something that can grow up and become something real. Words, yes. seed, words yes. as a a form of of organic life or power yes. inside a person, like uh, DNA. Yes. It begins as a seed and comes forth and blossoms. Yes. So I'd like to hear what you do I, with that. I, with I don't the even metaphor. think I need to say anything about that. You did a really great <laughs> job. <laughs> I love how you did it. At first, there was the word, and the word was good. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, I like to um, play with that idea. Right. So there's a bit of like um, divinity in word seed. Right. When we talk about religion, you know, someone will say plant a seed, like create something to grow. When we say um, in uh, Ebonics, we'll say, say word. That means just the truth. Right. Yeah. If you say word, it means that word. Means Word, like Word. You know, it means it means yeah. that is the beginning and the end. Yes, right? it and does. And so, so that um, word seed is exactly what you said. It has the potential for growth. It is the truth, and you know, language is the beginning for all of us. Like we can have a heart-to-heart -heart connection, right. but when we have also a when we have also a language connection. Right. It's, it changes everything. Yes. And if you go to the website, you'll see that it says, uh, um, words are our names, words are our religion, words are our founding documents. Everything is language. And who who can deny that? So we need, yeah. we need to plant seeds that help us grow in our language, which is everything. I'm glad you said that because my last question for you, 
um, deal specifically with words. So I have a group of words that I'm going to tell you right now, and I want you to respond to them in any way you like. Okay. You can shift it around, but my list for you is intimidated spaces, segregated plane, toxic masculinity, and humanism. And I'll repeat them. Intimidating spaces, segregated plane, toxic masculinity, and humanism. Woo! <laughs> Yeah, that's not too heavy. Intimidated um, spaces, <laughs> a segregated, what are we segregating? Plain, plain, as, as in your poem, segregated plain. Okay. P-L-A-N. Ah, ah, aha, aha. Uh, toxic masculinity and humanism. Wow, you know what? Um, that, that just makes me think, that group of words first brings to me black womanism. Mm. that's what it first makes me think of because there are some spaces as a person of color in particular a person who is of a slave descendant in the United States there are still spaces that we cannot go without fear there are still spaces like that when I was growing up here um, we knew that there was a certain block that we could not go past when we were trying to leave. Like there's a city limit. Don't pass that space. And that was not based on experiences that was taught to us Word. from very early Word. on. So Word. You, you cannot go to certain spaces. So when we talk about then segregation, there's a kind of segregation that we embrace, you know, like when all of the people of color find each other in the cafeteria or when we see strangers who are of color and just give them the nod, right? You know, just say, like, I see you. And, you know, so there's a kind of segregation that we embrace, but mostly the kind of segregation that we have in this country, it is based on hatred and extreme bias. And that cannot be that cannot be love. And so if we are trying yeah. to be humanist and come to a place of loving our humanity and loving each other, then we have to get rid of those intimidated spaces, get rid of those segregations. Yeah. And very often those kinds of things are led by um, present company excluded, white male toxicity very often, and Black people historically, slave descendants historically in the United States, have been met with violence for the idea of noncompliance. You didn't have to necessarily be noncompliant, but if there was an idea of noncompliance, then your family, your whole family was met with violence to reinforce what um, whatever the silly rule was about staying in your space and maintaining the segregation. Mm, I didn't make that up. That's the that's just the truth word. about our history. Yeah. And so being a black woman, being both a woman and black, this gets multiplied in ways that cannot be loved. And so we are often fighting 
mm. you know, mm. and all of the mm. different ways mm. that we are fighting just mm. to exist. Like, can it be okay right. to exist yeah. in this in this space? And we got to think about places. We got to think well, about and, and, and to be exist. in the ways that are based in love and, and make more right. space for them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And this is why, you know, women cling to their sons a bit more, right? A bit more because they, they, it's hard to say, you know, they are most likely to be stolen and broken, those they need the most protection. Man, that was a heavy question and you knocked it out of the park. <laughs> um, so let me expand, if I can, on the idea Please. of humanism. You know, when we are really embracing a uh, humanism that is um, there's a word that I like that I can't think of right now. What it means is um, all of our body parts are functioning at the um, the way that they are intended to function. Yum. And and, um, and our body parts are not limited to you know fingers, toes, etc. We are also emotive beings. And we're also social beings and we're also intelligent beings is what makes us human. So those things need to operate at, you know, homeostasis, right? They need to operate in the perfect way. And in order for us to be um, humanist, there's a love of all of the people exactly as they show up, right? And that sounds a little bit oxymoronic, like, well, what if they show up evil, right? Or what if they show up broken? Or what if they show up? But here's the thing, if they too are operating at homeostasis and I am striving toward homeostasis, then we have the ability then to have a, an incredible kind of empathy for one another, just, you know, that includes our separate histories, that includes our potential futures, that includes um, all of the things that we are learning and trying not, and all the things that we're trying not to forget in order to our futures. So I think um, being a humanist says um, less love first, and we can deal with the other issues after we have arrived at our states. Word, word, yes, word. yes. This woman makes sense. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and and it reminds me of another thing I wanted to ask you about, because you have another domain name that I found associated with you, which is Her Best Self which I guess is another program that maybe you uh, have led and you haven't spoken about yet. So I'm wondering what, what, uh, what that offers. I, I saw something about it being related to rites of passage for females. Okay, so I'm a mother. I have three daughters. I'm biased, but they are beautiful people. Um, not because any one of them looks like me. <laughs> But because they're, they're, beautiful, they're beautiful people, they're beautiful humans, yes. Um, yes. And they they are um, they are incredible. And so I was afraid when they were about to turn twelve and thirteen, because I'm a teacher and I know that age group, that they would stray in a way that I couldn't influence or couldn't control. Some part of parenting is, 
there's a level of control there. We gotta like put the bumper guards up for their path. And so I I was worried that they would, no matter how good of a mother I thought I was, try to get advice from somebody, not me, because they needed it from someone else. And I didn't want that someone else to be 12 or 13 who clearly Mm -hmm. would give them really terrible advice. And so I wrote this program first for my daughters, her best self, um, so that what I did was I asked the girls, choose three people who could be a potential mentor for you. Who in your life Mm. do you respect and love? And so they chose the person, and I wrote this program that had them complete uh, community service hours, in part because high school graduates need a certain number of community service hours, so I wanted to make sure that got done. And they had to um, complete two personal goals. That's important because as a woman, Mm -hmm. we sometimes too often put other things before us, your job, your children, your fill in the blank, and forget about other people's goals, goals, other people's goals. And so the program asked for community service, it asked for personal goals, and it asked them to create a community event. Now, this idea is for them to emerge as leaders, not seen by me, but for their community to recognize them as leaders and for them to recognize that they can think of something and manifest it. And what does it take? You know, my daughters were performers and athletes, but everything, they went to the track or they went to the soccer field or they went to the recital and it was already ready already. They had no idea about the things they were participating in, what it takes to put that on. And so I wanted them to understand what it means to create something from from your mind and bring it to fruition into the world. And so the program asked the young women to do those things. And at the same time, they're matched with this mentor who when they have a question about fill in the blank, they have this woman that they can go to who has the best interest of this girl in mind. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the idea. Amazing. So that's, that's her best self. I wrote it for my daughters. And then we matched girls in Seattle and uh, Patterson and Memphis. I'm going to Memphis soon to right. um, work with them. Right. Now, Queen, you ha- you have a connection to Seattle, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I lived there. I okay. lived there for, I, I went there to go to graduate school and I got distracted and I bought a business and a house and I started teaching and I did all a bunch of stuff. And then I- Distracted said, oh. by life? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just saying I had a baby and another baby and I was like, I am supposed to be going to grad school. And so then I finally went to grad school. So that kept me there for, from 1999 until 2015 Mm -hmm. and um and consequently i did a bunch of things there because i'm a a initiator right i'm an initiator i'm always going to make something right so i spent quite a bit of time we've we've picked that up about you by now yeah exactly exactly (laughs) word (laughs) word well how is it as a person of color i you know i had i had a chance to go to portland and i went over one night and hung out with friends in Seattle, what kind of place, because Seattle is one of those kinds of in-between places to me. I only would watch Kelsey Grammer, if you know his show that was filmed in Seattle. That's the only impression really I had of Seattle. But how is it 
for a person of color to live in this city of Seattle? I don't know how to answer that question because everyone, you know, has a different orientation to what their expectations are. And I had to recognize that my life is very privileged, right? And so I don't, I can't say that I have the same experience as a, as a different person. So there are people who are, whose families have been a part of Seattle for generations and they spend um, a great amount of time and effort creating this beautiful community in the central district of Seattle. And more and more, and continuing today, the central district is being gentrified. And um, so there's a difference between a person of color whose family has generations of being in uh, Seattle and then a person like me who came from someplace else um, to to that space. And so I have relationships with people from, you know, all over the world. And my connection to the space was not necessarily dependent upon some of the things I've heard people complain about. So a person might say, um, you know, being black in Seattle, there's just not enough black people or um, some folks have a different experience because their whole experience is black people because they live in a certain place and they do certain things, right? right? I can say this. I was living in a place that was a suburb that's another thing, right? I'm not in Seattle proper. I'm in right, just right. I cross the street into Seattle, right? Like literally across the street. In fact, the place I lived was was Seattle. And then they emancipated from uh, Seattle, but still use Seattle City Light. It's just weird. You know, like they use all of the public hmm. utilities, but they have their own little near day. So um, when I wanted my children to participate in things with people of color, I needed to drive to the Central District or I needed to drive to the South End. Mm. And so they weren't in their neighborhood. So being in Seattle, you do have to be more of a seeker of mm. your culture I see. if you want it, rather than like if you were in Brooklyn. Same. In Brooklyn, you know, life is different. Yes. Know? Uh, but in Seattle, you you have to seek it out. Gotcha. And it is, and it's, it's you can find it though. It's not like you know okay. finding Waldo. That's it's great. It's very great alive and it's very there. That's and great so to know. Thank um, you. I'm sorry for this. I hear banging. Me too. Me too. In my environment. So I apologize. Yeah. This is. Um, yeah, I want you to embrace that banging. Here's what it is: living in an urban space. Awesome. You Word. Don't know. What's going to happen? It could be sirens. It could be hammering. It could be any number of things. But, you know, we just turn it into poetry. Thank you. It's true. So, Queen, what about yes, what sir. about eight to ten minutes of reading for us of your work? We can have, Any, we can have whatever you like. Okay. So give us eight to ten minutes of your reading, and then I'll, then Roger and I will close it out. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your attention, being in our virtual company. We had a wonderful interview with Queen poet laureate of Patterson, New Jersey, uh, artivist, activist, and now we shall uh, have a reading from her. Thank you, Queen, it's on you. I'm gonna start with that poem that you referenced earlier. Thank you. It's called 1A. 
There is no comfort at 30,000 feet on a teacher's salary. The roles are segregated like the country according to race, which is also socioeconomic status. I look like seat 1A wearing my $10 jeans and had to have this sweater. All of the rich people in my front row seats smile at me when I stroll past. The middle class people in the middle add a wave to theirs like we're family. Even though my people are shot for being black, like the guy in the news today whose name we will certainly forget, even though he was shot at work, a security guard, by the police after he had done the tremendous job of stopping the gun-wielding bad guy in the club. He wanted to be a cop, the news article said. He is black because he is dead, I read. I'm sitting in his seat in the back, 36A, when the white people, who could be less wealthy than me, walk from the middle or the front to use the bathroom or exercise or see the flight attendant, they say to me, I love how you wrap your hair. I say, thank you, because it doesn't matter that my eyes were closed when they happened by. It doesn't matter that I was dreaming because I am black in the back of the racially and socioeconomically segregated plane pretending to be my ancestors, even though my seat, my real seat is 1A. The people in my seat all over this country are holding onto my seat with desperate claws they are smiling and waving and shooting us to death. Nobody says, sorry for your loss. Nobody on the racially and socially economically divided plane is discussing bullet lynchings. The plane talk today is about wedding dresses, grandbabies and business meetings. One lady who has the same ancestry as me sits between two friendly white men. She is smiling at them with plastic cheeks, but her plastic melts when she sees me. Her eyes cut my lips and I don't say anything at all. Anyway, who can say gentle nothings about braids and hair wraps when men are laying on the asphalt with our ancestry pouring out? Okay, not today. Today I grade papers and mourn in silence en route to my Seattle suburb second home. I will admire the art collection on the walls, peek out at the garden, and maybe plant a bulb for what's his name, who was bullet lynched today. This is a poem. Um, it's called You Make Me Feel Like Poetry. It's very sexy. Is it okay for you to have a sexy poem? Oh yes, definitely. Word. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we're Word. against we're against anything sexy. <laughs> Word. <laughs> All right, let's try this out. I'm gonna try to do this without blushing too much. Oh, baby. You make me feel like. Poetry. You got me wanting to do things with my lips and my tongue. You got me alliterating and stuttering S sounds just for fun. You got me wanting to keep more than my mind open. You make me the moon with a touch of sun. Oh, baby. You make me feel like, you make me feel like 
poetry tonight let's pretend i'm the crescent and you the creator giving me 120 lessons nothing less nothing greater mm, let's make stars with stars upon stars let's write the lines i'll find your lines and show you where to find mine oh hey you make me feel like you make me feel like Poetry, I don't want to be next to you. I want to connect with you. I want to wiggle rhyme and wrestle with you. I want to be as essential as water to you. I want to make vowel sounds, confuse the music with you like, oh, 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 baby, you make me feel like poetry. Your poem is my heartbeat. Your voice is the rhythm of my feet. When you speak, I breathe deeper. Each inhale is an accelerant for the way my hips sway. Each exhale is, each exhale is, should I tell? Yeah, each exhale is a capital letter pronoun explanation mark your name sound. I don't even remember who I was before I found your name on my tongue, slipping out between my teeth and tingling on my lips. Oh, baby, you make me feel like poetry. You got me comparing all the stars to all the sayings of grand and sayings, grains of sand. You got me comparing all the stars to all the grains of sand and still feeling like I matter more than that smiling girl in the portrait, that I am worth more than Pharaoh's fortune. Fortune, like my smile has more might than Alexander's army, like my body was formed from clay and your breath. Your breath brought me to life like I am the reason that Shaka the Zulu shortened the rod on his spear like I am the pattern of the cheetah's print, black and brown and beautiful like I am supposed to be here, baby. I would die for the chance for Baby, you make me feel like, you make me feel like, you make me feel like poetry. Yes. I heard you giggling. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you just say? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you well, for that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you have one more for us? One more for I, us? Okay, yes. I, I, I have a lot of poetry. Yes. So um, let, let me ask you, what are you feeling like? You heard something that was political. You mm -hmm. heard something that was homage to yes. our ancestry. Yes. You heard something sexy. What do you want to hear? I, uh, I'm, I'm open to, I, I read a large swath of your work. <laughs> I'm open to any of your work. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Whatever you'd like to end with. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, you happy and hello. <laughs> oh, yeah. You guys are so kind. This is 13 ways of looking at a black boy. One, among 20 armed officers, the only moving thing was the falling body of a black boy. Two, the roots and the branches of a family tree in which there are love and legacy and memories of lynched black boys. Three, the black boy is the greatest and the greatest endurer of unnecessary historical pain. Four, a man and a woman are one, 
a man and a woman and a black boy are one. Five. I don't know which to prefer. The beauty of a black boy's eyes or the beauty of his creative mind. The black boy's potential, sure bliss, or the black boy's tendency to love. Six. Bars filled the long hallways with barbaric enclosures. The body of the black boy crossed it to and fro. His mind, uncontainable. His spirit, still free. Seven. Oh, men of theology, why do you imagine golden hair? Do you not see how the wool-headed black boy walks around on feet of polished bronze around Eight. I know valuable places and possessions and complicated, intricate creations, ways of knowing. But I know, too, that the black boy is involved in what I know. Nine. When the black boy emerged on the Western Hemisphere, it marked the edge of many improvements to modern society. Ten. At the sight of black boys gathered under streetlights, even the asphalt beneath their sneakers are blessed by their existence. 11. She rides around the country in an impossible glass coach. Each time a fear pierces her, she mistakes her fragility and insecurity and false vulnerability for a black boy. 12. The earth is spinning, the black boy is her axis. 13, it was a murmuration. It was black boys gathered to show black boy solidarity in spite of the many obstacles. That's that. 13 ways of looking at mm -hmm. a black boy. Thank you so much, <laughs> Queen, for your deliberation. I'm Robert Gibbons, along with my cohort and partner, Roger Kimmel Smith, we thank you so much for being with us today um, for Humanist Attack. We had a great time making this show with you. Feel free to comment on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe and click on the bell below our, our Discord, our Twitter, our subscription, our mail and our email. And you can also support us through Patreon. Be safe. Be healthy, keep love, learning, and laughing. Being human is funny when human is attacked. Patterson Poetry Festival is 97 days away. Patterson Poetry Festival is the Super Bowl of poetry events. Everything that you ever experienced that was positive in poetry is happening all in one place. All the in center one. of the universe. It's <laughs> and in the center of the universe, yeah. <laughs>